You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Raid. Okay, it's Friday again. And again, I'm Jacob with a Friday Raid, broadcasting on Community Radio, Radical Radio, 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your Melbourne AM dial, on 3CR Digital or via all the W's at 3cr.org.au. And you can also follow Friday Rave, by the way, on Facebook and Twitter, and you should do that. I'm stuck up here in Sydney, missing Melbourne family and friends, and it looks like the lockdown here is going to stay for at least a couple more months. Who'd have thought? But <clears throat> the weather's decidedly more tolerable here, at least, and I'm based in Glebe, which is nice and central. Not there's much to be central to right now, but it's a short walk into town where I'm filling some gaps made by the lockdown as an essential worker with justice action, advocating for prisoners' rights. It's particularly hard inside at the moment, with visits being cancelled all, so they need all the advocacy they can get. But that's not what I'm going to rave about today. Today I'm going to talk about the military build-up that's going on in the region. Yep, the good old US of A which everyone is happy about now, by the way, that they've got rid of Trump and a a proper professional career politician in charge. The US is building up in the Asia-Pacific region in a show of strength. Um, In its, um, what's the word, economic, financial, trade war, whatever you want to call it, against China. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't believe there'll be a full-on, full-scale war between the US and China. Because even if they are the most belligerent mob of warmongers that have ever been on the planet, they know that a full-on war would be unprofitable. Nonetheless, they need to build up to one. Because, well, let's face it, this is what the Western economy is built around. The war, in many ways, is already going on. It's an economic war. And as Thomas Friedman put it in the New York Times almost a quarter of a century ago now, and I still remember being impressed that he put it so honestly, he wrote, and I'll quote, For globalisation to work, America can't be afraid to act like the almighty superpower it is. The hidden hand of the market will never work without a hidden fist. McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonald Douglas, the designer of the F-15. And a hidden fist that keeps the world safe for Silicon Valley's tech is called the US Army, Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps. Now, you can't put it much clearer than that. Um, it's not that they need to invade, mind you, in order to keep their market safe. What they need to do is let their market and their suppliers know that they could, or even that they'd remove the tremor of protection they offer and let some other country invade, who's worse than them, apparently. You know, it's a protection racket. But the threat is indeed real. You know, if you hold a gun to someone's head, you don't need to pull the trigger to get them to do what you want them to do. In fact, better if you don't. 
Dead people can't follow orders. Decimated countries can't add to your economy. So today, on the 76th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, 6th of August, 1945, I'm going to have a look at the US's military build-up in the region. Now first, a potted and by no means complete history of how we got there. And it starts back in 1891 in Cuba, when Secretary of State James Blaine suggested that all of Central and South America would someday belong to the US. And he wrote, that rich island, the key to the Gulf of Mexico, is, though in the hands of Spain, a part of the American commercial system. If ever ceasing to be Spanish, Cuba must necessarily become American and not fall under any other European domination. Now, I could do a whole history show about the first Cuban Revolutionary War at the end of the 19th century, but I won't. For now, what happened is that the abolition of slavery in Spain changed the whole economy of Cuba, and this led to a call for independence that took until 1889 to be realised. Now, when that was almost a fait accompli, the US, who had previously been trying to buy Cuba from Spain, suddenly became champions of the revolution and intervened, which led them to declare war on Spain, and incidentally establishing a beachhead in Guantanamo Bay, in case you haven't heard, they're still there. Um, Now, while the congressional approval for military intervention on behalf of the Cuban revolution included the amendment by anti-imperialists, that the US does not occupy Cuba, but only stay as long as they need to oust Spain, it said nothing at all about either Puerto Rico or the Philippines. Or Guam. You know, but now we'll leave Cuba. But note that the Spanish-America War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, which saw Spain giving the US um, control of the Philippines, Guam and Puerto Rico for $20 million dollars and Cuba becoming a protectorate of the United States, um, as it stayed until it got its own independence in 1902. Of course, you could call it independence when its own constitution gave the US the right to intervene in it militarily and to control its finances and foreign relations. In effect, this was a de facto annexation, with all the privileges and none of the responsibility. Now, this method of financial and military control became the 20th century replacement for the old colonialist model used by the European powers and it served the US well over the years. So while we leave the US exercising control over the Caribbean through its commercial interests in Cuba and Puerto Rico and of course um, intervening in a similar situation in Venezuela where the Venezuelan people were rising against the English and did any did I mention the United Fruit Company? Anyway, let's leave it there for a minute and go over to the Pacific. Firstly, Guam, because it's less complicated. President McKinley transferred Guam to the US Navy in 1898 um, to be permanently a naval base, which is more or less how it stayed ever since, other than for a brief period of Japanese occupation in World War II, but even then, Japan was occupying the US military base rather than the island of Guam for its own sake. The Philippines, though, is a little more complicated. When the US took control of the Philippines from Spain, 
it was in the middle of its own struggle for independence. Strangely enough, the US didn't recognise the rights of the Filipinos as they did the Cubans, and that led to the American-Philippines War, which killed up to a million people and ended with the establishment of the US Civil Administration. Now, that continued until after the Japanese occupation of World War II when um, they got their own independence. But, you know, when they first occupied it, they established military bases at Subic Bay and Angeles City. And I first went to the Philippines in the 80s, actually, as part of the campaign protesting against these bases. As the US got power through their commercial colonisation, um, foreshadowing Friedman's sit and fist, President Roosevelt um, actually came out with what he called the big stick ideology, speak softly but carry a big stick. Um, the US embarked on a military circumnavigation of the globe with its great white fleet. Now again, I said, I said last week, and I'm going to stick by it, I intend to do a story on the Anzus Treaty next month, so I'll leave a lot about the Great White Fleet until then. But they travelled around Australia, the Philippines, Japan, China and Sri Lanka, them called Ceylon, on a goodwill tour. Now we now know that they went mapping ports and listing port assets of everywhere they went, drawing up invasion plans. But anyway, by the early 20th century, the US was well and truly entrenched militarily and commercially in the Asia-Pacific, and things stayed that way until World War Two. And I'm going to skip the Second World War because the basic history of that war is known pretty much by everyone and it shows and shows in itself to do it any kind of justice. But at the end of it all, the US dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After Japan had already begun to negotiate a peace deal with the Soviet Union. And that set the stage for the US military hegemony in the region with bases in Guam, the Philippines, Japan, the Marshall Islands, and that projected and protected US commercial interests. Now, there wasn't a lot of time after those bombings, after the end of the Second World War. We had, of course, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, which, while the US did not win, still served to entrench US militarism and commercial dominance in the region, with the sole exception of the country of Vietnam itself. Now, by the time these two wars were over, the US had added bases in Australia and New Zealand to its military portfolio. So, where are we now? Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. You listen to Community Radio 3CR855 on your AM dial through all the W's at 3cr.org.au through your surveillance helicopter in the sky, wherever you are. My name's Jacob with a Friday Rave. As listeners would be aware, the US, along with Australia, is currently engaged in a build-up aiming at stemming the commercial successes and aspirations of China. In particular, um, China is putting a lot of money into building what it's called its one its Belt Road Initiative, uh, a trade route going all around the world with um, um, assets strategically placed to assist its, um, well, its trade. Now, rhetoric from the Australian government 
not only about this, but about China in general, is getting scarier and bloody scarier, as it appears that we may end up being the US proxy for a limited war or a limited confrontation with China that the US itself doesn't want to get into. And likewise, I think China is recognising this, and by recent statements that I spoke about last week, may be prepared to have a bit of a biffo with the US through us as its proxy, as long as there's an understanding that neither side will let it get out of hand. But in the commercial war, the one between the one and the dollar, the only two sides really, let's put aside all that bullshit about nationalism and recognise what it's about, what it's always been about, money. Um, it's obvious that the hidden, the hidden fist is um, busy turning itself to the big stick, an obvious big stick towards smaller economies of not siding with the new guy, and commercially speaking. It's the only way you could really call China new. They are the new capitalist kid on the block. And so the US forces are on the move. Now, first of all, for the first time ever, we believe, all three of their Seawolf-class nuclear attack subs have been deployed simultaneously. Let me say that. That's never happened before. Normally they work by a, a doctrine of threes. A third's in dry dock, a third's deployed, and a third is ready, waiting to replace the one that's deployed if such a need arise. Um, they're all nuclear armed, and one of them, the USS Jimmy Carter, I think it is, also has an addition with a whole lot of um, electronic warfare equipment. So the submarines are on the move. Now, in addition to the submarines, an unprecedented number of F-22s and F-15s and 30-something all up have this last week been relocated to Guam, along with a few cargo um, carriers, AC-130s, I think. Um, from there, they'll be reallocated to airstrips all around the region. Now, some of these airstrips have been basically just maintained in mothballs since the end of the Second World War. And they are now being reactivated um, <clears throat> as part of the US's Agile Combat Employment um, Concept, Doctrine, Project, whatever you want to call it. The three-letter acronym, the TLA, of course, being ACE. Now, sometimes, somehow, this year, a new base has made its way onto the list of the US's ACE bases, and that new base is Darwin. Earlier this year, approval was given for the US to keep operational planes in Darwin. And this very clearly changes Australia's status. Up until now, the only bases we had were the so-called Joint Facility Intelligence Bases like Pine Gap, Northwest Cape and the various other small US deployments at our Echelon ASD bases. We now have troops and planes on the ground. And these planes will obviously be carrying weapons. I shouldn't say now, maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they won't be there for another few days, but a week at most. And they're obviously carrying weapons. They're not going to leave planes parked in Darwin empty so that they need to go back to Guam to load shit up, are they? Now, finally, well, as far as Australia's concerned, we have Pine Gap, where as I speak, and for the last couple of months, Five, at least five, possibly six, new satellite dishes and ray domes are being hurriedly installed. 
Work is going on at a cracking pace from the little we can see by the contractors moving in and out of town. So that's, what's that about? Well, it can only, they're, they're all going to be aiming north. We know that much. Meanwhile, mustn't forget Japan in Okinawa, US troop numbers are rising. And just as an aside, though it shouldn't be an aside, a US Marine was arrested yesterday for raping a local woman. Okinawa is rife with COVID, and that's the case with US bases all over the world, including in Darwin, where at least two US soldiers are known to be COVID positive and isolated in the Johnson Barracks. Moving back up to the Philippines, last weekend President Duterte succumbed to US prisoner and walked back from his pledge to end the visiting forces agreement with the US and announced that the agreement is back in full force. He did this during a visit by the new Secretary of Defence, US Secretary of Defence, Lloyd Austin. Now, during Austin's tour of the region, he called on US allies in the region to, quote, force a new regional order. And he said that the US had, and I'll quote here, use every military and non-military tool in our toolbox, in lockstep with our allies and partners. Integrated deterrence is about using existing capabilities and building new ones and deploying them all in new and network ways. Before adding, all tailored to a region's security landscape and in growing partnership with our friends. Of course, it's almost like he said, you know, terms and conditions apply. So, friends and other listeners, in short, it looks to me like the stage is being set. Next week, I'll delve a little deeper into what exactly is happening where in the region. For now, I'm just going to leave you with a little pre-recorded piece about Hiroshima Day. From the 2019 um, award-winning short documentary, Hibakusha. This photograph was taken after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. An Oklahoma City firefighter is seen holding a dying, bloody child who was caught in the bombing. Fifty years before, 
This photograph was taken after the bombing of Nagasaki in 1945. A Nagasaki relief worker is seen holding a dying, bloody child who was caught in the bombing. The photograph on the left was used to demonstrate the horrors of the bombing of innocent civilians and was published all over the world, especially in the United States. It won a Pulitzer Prize in 1996. The bomb used in the Oklahoma City bombing was the equivalent of over 5,000 pounds of TNT. The photograph on the right was barred from publication in almost all Allied countries in fear that it would hurt morale. It went unseen to the public for years. The bomb used in the bombing of Nagasaki was the equivalent of over 35,273,961 pounds of TNT. While the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki led to Japan's surrender, which created peace and saved thousands of lives, we should not be allowed to forget what it cost to achieve this. We must look back and remember the price of peace. The people who survived the bombings were forever changed. They became the embodiment of the wars of war. These survivors have their own name in Japan. On May 8, 1945, the German forces unconditionally surrendered to the Allied forces, marking the beginning of the end of World War II. The powerful Japanese force was all that was left for the Allied forces to defeat. American citizens rallied behind this cause. Initially, the United States was planning on sending in ground troops to invade Japan and force them to surrender in that way. It was estimated that thousands of American lives would have been lost if that plan was executed. So, the United States began deciding on an alternative solution. Soon after the Germans surrendered, American Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson formed an interim committee to focus on developing nuclear weapons, a development they learned about from the Germans. This led to the expedition of the already existing Manhattan Project, which was the codename for the first successful development of nuclear weapons. Famed scientist Albert Einstein's mass energy equivalence was even used, as Einstein had written a letter to former President Franklin D. Roosevelt recommending the use of nuclear weapons, knowing that the Germans were trying to develop them as well. Development was located at the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico. The development team was directed by J. Robert Oppenheimer, a theoretical physicist. Oppenheimer was the main designer of the bombs. The project culminated in an event which is considered by some people to be the greatest scientific advancement in weapons history. The Trinity nuclear test was the first detonation of a nuclear weapon in history. At this point, the United States knew they had the power to win the war. Soon, meetings between the leaders of the Allied nations began to determine the next step. They decided to send a declaration to the Japanese forces. The Potsdam Declaration warned the Japanese of what would happen if they did not surrender. We call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces and to provide proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such action. The alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. Atomic weapons were not mentioned in this document, as Henry L. Stimson had informed President Harry S. Truman that the weapons should be kept secret until they were used. The Japanese government rejected the Potsdam Declaration. The United States government soon came through on their promise of utter destruction.
crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. The United States had officially defeated the Japanese forces. It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees. But now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. However, while American citizens celebrated like this, here's the condition the civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were in. The destruction in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki was unimaginable. The scene was truly horrifying. This is what the average American in 1945 did not see. The average American most likely thought military targets were bombed. The average American only saw the destruction of a city. The average American did not see the destruction of its innocent civilians. Some of the most powerful images from the bombings came from military photographer Yosuke Yamahata, who was in Nagasaki at the time of the bombings. His images provided a haunting and terrifying portrait of the true nature of the bombings. While horribly injured and most likely poisoned by radiation, this woman and child are lucky compared to this woman and child. All of Yamahata's photographs and almost all footage of the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were seized by the United States government and were prohibited from publication. It was believed that they might directly or by inference disturb public tranquility. The materials were not made available to the public until 1952. Many more photographs came from many other photographers, but perhaps more than that are first-hand testimonies from the Hibakusha, the survivors themselves. Then there were uh, split stomachs, the intestines out, uh, come out, and then the uh, fractured uh, skull, so forth. Well, the fingernails, just, uh, I think if you pull them, they just, well, I didn't have a chance of uh, trying to do anything like that, but they uh, they bent outward. The skin was all off, and the nails bent outward. And I think if I tried to take them off, they just come off. Those that did not die immediately were forever left with scars and suffering. Many developed forms of cancer from the radiation. Many of them still suffer to this day. Aside from the Japanese citizens, 20 American soldiers who were POWs in Japan were killed in the bombings as well. Today, the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are flourishing, having a combined population of over one and a half million people. However, the cities have not forgotten their past. The Hiroshima Peace Memorial, originally the Hiroshima Perfectual Industrial Promotion Hall in Hiroshima, is dedicated to those who lost their lives in Hiroshima alone. J. Robert Oppenheimer designed the bombs. He approved everything relating to the creation of the bombs. Albert Einstein had recommended the American use of nuclear weapons. His formula was instrumental to their creation. Oppenheimer and Einstein were quoted in later years as follows. If atomic bombs are to be added as new weapons to the arsenals of a warring world, or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind will curse the names of Los Alamos and of Hiroshima. I made one great mistake in my life. When I signed the letter to President Roosevelt recommending that atomic bombs be made, if I had foreseen Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I would have torn up my formula in 1905.
to this day, you know, the US has not apologized to the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Talk to you next week. <laughs>